You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Inflation, recession, stagflation. Just what the hell is going on? Hi there. Thanks for tuning in to another Real Vision podcast. So, what the hell is going on? We all want to know. Here at Real Vision, we've debuted a special series called Global Recession. Is everyone wrong? We've called on the world's best experts, including Juliette de Klerk, David Rosenberg, Peter Zion, Pierre Andoran, and many more, to try and help us make sense of things. These real experts will be giving Real Vision members in-depth, long-form analysis on the real stuff that's happening. Best of all, you can get access to all 14 days of Global Recession, Is Everyone Wrong?, for just $1. Yep, $1. So head to realvision.com slash global recession. That's realvision.com slash global recession to join us on this epic two-week journey of discovery. everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, May 6, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake, and here with me today is Jeff Snyder, Head of Global Research at Alhambra Investments. Hi, Jeff. It's great to see you. Hi, Maggie. Uh, wow. Uh, what a week this has been. Uh, here's, where, here's where we're ending up. We're just closing out the U.S. session for equities uh, and the week. And it looked early in the day like U.S. stocks were going to try to stabilize. But as Tony predicted yesterday, uh, they couldn't quite hold on. I have to say, it looked like it was going to fall apart fast and be really ugly. It's It moved off the bottom. So we're down about only about a quarter percent on the Dow. NASDAQ is down 1.4%. The Russell's down almost 2%. S&P down a half a percent. Doesn't look bad considering what we saw yesterday and what it was shaping up to be. Uh, still, though, you know, you're not getting at, you know any of that stability. I think people had hoped for uh, the yields on the 10-year is at 3.12 percent. Oil was up again about one and a quarter to two percent. Crypto down again, not heavy losses. Uh, Bitcoin hovering right right below 36,000. Ethereum down about a third to 2,676 uh, last time I checked, but um, that may be moving around a bit. And the U.S. dollar continued its march higher against pretty much everything. Um, so Jeff, when you when you look at kind of where we ended up here, awful lot to unpack. But what's top of top of mind for you as we look across what happened in global markets this week? Well, yeah, as you said, this week has been a pretty interesting event-filled week. It's, it wasn't boring, that's for sure. I mean, especially the ups and downs and volatility over the last couple of days. One day, the stock market's happy. Jay Powell said, I guess, the right things. And the next day, apparently, he didn't say the right things. Who knows um, <clears throat> the way these things go in the short run. But it's amazing that uh, overall, I think the biggest story here is the U.S. dollar. U.S. dollar has been not just higher for the last you know several months, but it's accelerated in its upward trend over the past month or six weeks or so. So I think the U.S. dollar is probably the biggest story that's uh, that's maybe shaking markets and getting people's attention that maybe there's more going on in the world here than uh, previously pre previously everybody thought. Yeah, and what does that tell you? What do you make of it? 
But when the dollar goes up, nothing good. That's it's not good for every. I mean, we've gone through all the phases of sort of like the the, the five phases of, of grief and, and acceptance here because it used to be that when the dollar went up, everybody thought, hey, that's a great thing. The U.S. the U.S. economy must be doing really well. Strong dollar, strong America. Then it was mm-hmm. sort of okay. Well, America's not really doing well, so maybe it's the dollar's the cleanest, dirty shirt. And you got into that kind of rhetoric, and now I think. Over the last four or five years, especially in the 2018, 2019 case, people have started to realize that when the dollar goes up, it's not good for anybody and anybody in either the real economy or in financial marketplaces. The dollar is a wrecking ball and it's it really tells you that there's something really amiss in the global financial system, global economy and global monetary system. Yeah. But why is we've heard that phrase over and over again from so many of the guests that that I've been talking to on Real Vision this week for for folks. Why is it a wrecking ball? Why is it so negative? What does it do or what does it destroy that creates so many problems for the global system? Well, it's it. The dollar's exchange value itself is not the issue. It's a reflection or a symptom of what's really going on. And when the dollar goes up, what that tells you is that there's tightening in the global monetary system for a variety of reasons usually self-reinforcing reasons, but overall, the rising dollar is a key indication that money is becoming tight, financial markets are becoming very risk-averse, and usually that correlates closely with negative uh, real economy consequences, whether a substantial downturn here or elsewhere around the world, usually synchronized, or perhaps worse than a downturn, recession, and more. So the yeah. do- it's, not, it's not the dollar's exchange value, it's what the exchange value represents. It's the signal. And yeah. the signal is saying recession's a real possibility. And if I'm understanding you correctly, the fact that it's accelerating means the chances of a recession and maybe an ugly one are getting higher. Yeah, they were pretty substantial to begin with, and they're they're absolutely going up. And it's and it's not just you know the dollar's exchange value. You can connect that with other marketplaces too that have been increasingly pessimistic for months now. I mean. Euro dollar futures curve inverted way back now on December 1st of last year. So we've had inversion in that curve for the last six months. And then everything else that goes along with it, be the swaps market, uh, the U.S. Treasury yield curve that the two tens inverted a couple of days in March. The curve itself is still somewhat inverted, a little bit between the seven and 10 year as we speak. And other markets too, like, uh, for example, treasury bills, collateral, real money in the system. All sorts of indications telling us that something is just not right there, which if you you know look at it in terms of a probability spectrum, the, the rising dollar, like the uh, like the inversion in the, these various curves, tells you that the chances of something negative happening have been rising, and they have been rising relatively quickly over the last month or so. Which is, I think, interesting and perplexing to people because we to today we had a jobs a US jobs report right the monthly jobs report showed a gain of 428,000 new jobs that looks good on the surface 3.8% unemployment rate average hourly earnings a little lower than people expected um but you know still showing gains although obviously not keeping pace with inflation uh so you know if you would if you were to look at that you'd say the US economy looks pretty good and we have the fed saying we've got to hike rates because we got to slow this thing down we have too much inflation so we need to do something you're saying what are you looking at you mentioned ism let's that has come up a lot as well when you look at that why should we pay some attention to something like the ism maybe more than a jobs report why is that a more accurate reflection and and why have you been looking at that to to signal that things are weakening and why isn't why isn't the fed looking at that surely they know about it 
Yeah, why is the Fed doing what it's doing, right? I mean, because yeah. that's, that's the real question here. As you said, it seems like there's a disconnect here between some of the economic data, certainly most of the marketplaces, the U.S. dollar prominently, and what the Fed is doing. And I think we talked about this last time I was on the show here with you, that uh, the Fed is maybe doing things more politically than necessarily because of economic factors. You know, the, the White House and uh, Congress and everybody in, in Washington, you know, knocking down their door saying, you're the guys that are supposed to be doing something about inflation. So get doing something about inflation, regardless of what's actually going on in the real economy. So I think that's part of the reason why the Fed is acting and acting so aggressively. And I think that's, you know, that message was reinforced at the, to me, cringeworthy, embarrassing press conference that Jay Powell conducted on Wednesday, where he basically went full Bill Clinton and said, I feel your pain, talking directly to consumers. I'm like, yeah. You know, that's not a central bank. That's not a central banker. That's not how they're supposed to operate. So I think in the one sense, the Fed is sort of on autopilot for rate hikes for reasons that have little to do with the with the actual economic situation. Then you look at the actual economic situation. And Maggie, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit today. I think the payroll report was kind of bad. Okay, the, why? What were you looking at? Labor the establishment survey was fine. It was a little bit lower end of the range. Remember, they smooth they smooth the establishment survey out, so it's not going to vary. It's not going to show much variation. The household survey actually declined by three hundred fifty thousand, which is their first decline in since twenty twenty. Now, the household survey is notoriously volatile, but a single month you don't pay attention to a single month, but a decline of that magnitude suggests. Maybe there's something else there that we need to watch going forward, as well as not just the household survey of employee, but also the labor force number two, which dropped for the first time in some time as well. So there is a one month, and you don't want to pay attention and put too much stock on one month, but just one month on the CPS side rather than the CS side of the BLS report that said maybe there is a little more weakness than we than than the, uh, the, than the establishment survey certainly makes it makes it seem. But that's, it's not just the payroll report. I mean, we just went through the GDP number, which was negative. Yes, yes. And everybody's, oh, let's write that off because it was inventory. It was imports. It was all this. Even if you do to, uh, account for inventory, there was, still would have been a negative in the first quarter. And it would have erased the big gain in the fourth quarter. So it's not just one quarter of a negative GDP. It's actually three consecutive quarters of at least low GDP across not just the, the, the overall headline, but also some of the more meaningful numbers like final sales, real final sales of domestic products, three straight quarters of really low, almost zero numbers that was negative in the first quarter, too. So it's not just the payroll reports, not just one month. You know, you mentioned the ISM, the ISM. Yeah, we've got a actually- chart of that too. Let's put that up because this is something that, and, and this is, you know, I, I, I know that you guys are so sort of in the weeds on all the data and really looking through it all to try to get a run on what's forward, the forward indicators, yeah. because some are more reflective of future activity than others. So what are we seeing with the ISM? Because I know Raul's mentioned it as well. It's coming up a lot. As you said, ISM is much more forward-looking. The labor numbers are at best coincident, possibly lagging. So, you know, labor can be doing one thing while the economy starts, the leading edge of the economy starts to do another, whereas the ISM numbers do tend to correlate closely with forward-looking and future indications, uh, especially the new orders component, because as it would seem, you know, if if new orders are are growing at a a slower rate or actually contracting as they are in China, then that's an indication that, you know, several months forward, 
things are not going to be going well in the economy. And the ISM is, of course, the longstanding one. It's the granddaddy of all purchasing manager indexes, has a very long track record in history. And when you look at the latest ISM numbers, again, it's not just the latest month or just this year. The ISM has been in a slowdown for a very long time already. And it's gotten to the point where you look at where the ISM was in April and compare that to where the ISM was in 2019. And it's interesting to note that where the ISM numbers were in 2019, the Fed was actually cutting rates. So here they are at the, basically the same level of the ISM. The, the ISM numbers moving in the same direction, which is lower. And this time, the Fed is aggressively hiking rates, whereas last time they had already panicked into cutting rates. So again, I think well, that reinforces the disconnect between the Fed yeah. doing things for one reason and the real economy may be behaving differently. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that makes absolutely no sense at all. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You mentioned China. So if the U.S. economy is, is there are reasons to be worried about it, what about China? And is the strong dollar having an impact there as well? But yeah, if, if you're worried about the U.S. economy, and I think you should be, you're triple, quadruple, quintuple world worried about the Chinese economy, even after what Xi Jinping said last week, which I think was misinterpreted sometimes on purpose, but misinterpreted last week. I mean, the the, uh, the the latest economic numbers all year have been pretty bad, especially after the January, February Golden Week holiday. And they've only gotten worse, as I think we would all expect, given the fact that Shanghai was locked down and now there's all sorts of additional restrictions being imposed all throughout China. So it's not exactly unexpected that the Chinese economy would suffer, but I think it's it's part of a large, larger, bigger structural picture where it's not just about these zero COVID policies or the lockdowns in individual cities. It goes back much further than that, not just last year, but even going back to the 19th Party Congress in 2017, where the Chinese have basically accepted that they're not going to prioritize economic growth over everything else. And so where that gets into becomes a real big problem is in 2022, where I think a lot of uh, Western expectations are set on China being at least some kind of pillar of support, at least a pillar of stability. Uh, the Chinese economy is certainly not behaving in that way, nor is the reaction to it, because what Xi Jinping actually announced last last week wasn't this massive neo-Keynesian uh, fiscal stimulus package. What he said was. We're going to support those industries that are that are being hard hit by his COVID policies. But by and large, this massive government spending is going to be targeted at national security, which mm. is sort of a, a ominous, you know, here, here comes the ominous music uh, playing into him saying, yeah, the economy is probably going to get worse. We're not really going to do much about it except increase our capacity for monitoring and uh, policing dissent inside inside China, as well as hopefully not, building up further the Chinese military to maybe do some adventuring outside of China. 
Yeah, that is ominous indeed. We joked beforehand. I said I needed some sound sound effects. I, I, I now I think I really do. But that that is ominous. But it's also very important because it's you know there are some people who I think are looking at the COVID situation and perhaps anticipating that when those restrictions come off, yeah, okay, they lasted longer than anyone thought. We're going to see a rebound, which would help the global economy. But but this is this is much bigger, um, you know, and much and much more long lasting. And as you say, structural, which which really changes the scenario. What about the yuan? Are we expecting any? Are you expecting any change there? You know, vis a vis what's happening with currencies. Yeah, it's 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 being impacted by the rising dollar, at least the the, the uh, global monetary system, the, the problems in it that are behind the yuan's sudden decline, which isn't really all that sudden. It goes back to the same time as we saw all those financial fireworks across all sorts of markets at the end of February into early March. I think this got lost in the whole Russia-Ukraine thing, which was really the global monetary system, the global marketplace saying there's more going on here than just Russia and Ukraine. It has to do with the Chinese economy. As you just said, Maggie, I think there was a lot of belief that even if the Chinese do suffer zero COVID policy, they shut down Shanghai and things like that, as soon as the, sh- the lockdowns are removed, like a cork, it'll just pop back up when, as we've seen over time, that these lows keep getting lower, the highs keep getting lower too. And so even though there's individual uh, idiosyncratic variations in terms of depth and degree of whatever economic uh, part you're talking about, over time, it keeps getting lower and lower and lower. So that economic growth potential itself, the long run stuff, is actually is actually falling down. I think that's starting to make its way into the, certainly the Chinese currency as well as certain marketplace and market expectations as well. Specifically with the Chinese yuan, though, what you're really seeing is a huge degree of sudden risk aversion, specifically about China. I don't think it's again. I don't think it's specific. It's it's particularly about uh, the zero COVID policy as much as it is the long run implications of after we're done with these things, after the Chinese are over with COVID and zero COVID and lockdowns. What did she really mean when he said national security? How is that going to yeah. play out in the financial markets and the economy? And I think uh, the marketplace is starting to react very negatively. As you can see, Chinese yuan has absolutely tanked over the last week or so. I think what's so important about the work you do, Jeff, is that you're, you're, you, you've pointed out many times that there are things going on underneath the market, and then there are events layered on top of it, and they sometimes get associated or attributed to that. And that would be much more temporary. And instead, there is this larger move that's missed because people confused what happened at the time. They made a you know a link with either Fed policy or or geopolitics because you just said something both about COVID and also about the Ukraine situation, kind of masking what's going on underneath the hood. And this is why we're running a series, a special series all this week, asking the very question, are we headed for a global recession? What does it mean for markets? And importantly, what are the factors that are temporary or um, you know, due to geopolitics or what's something that's much more, should be much more part of your sort of larger structural framework that you're taking into consideration. But geopolitics plays a really important uh, role in that. And Dee Smith sat down with Peter Zahan, who's extremely concerned about the future. Let's listen to a clip from that. When capital is cheap, when liquidity is high, high frequency trading and broad indexes make sense because there's enough money for everybody to do everything, no matter how odd it might be. And that is among other things, subprime and Enron and cryptocurrency. You remove the liquidity, those just go away. And all of a sudden when capital is dear and limited in supply, 
value add for investors become everything because rates of return all of a sudden are front of mind instead of anyone can invest in anything and petpsychotherapy.com does really well. We're very close to that world. And in that world, broad indexes are a suicide pact. Uh, right now, if you want to ingest, invest in a broad agricultural index, you will get exposure to the Midwest and Brazil and Ukraine. And Ukraine will never be an oil or an egg food exporter ever again. Uh, but that's the way it's assembled right now. It's assembled with all developing countries being in the same basket, regardless of their governance or their industries or their trajectory. So we're going to see a breakdown in all of that. And finance folks are actually going to have to do the hard work, not of reading through prospectuses, but investigating individual firms and bringing their value add there so that they can say, you know, this firm is not exposed to this risk, but it is exposed to this beneficial trend. And so this isn't just an issue of going from client to client, showing them the most recent mutual funds. You're going to have to assemble your own. That full interview is available to all Essential Plus and Pro members, and we'll try to put the link in the comments or chat or, you know, where you can find it. Um, but, Jeff, very interesting. And, you know, you've been saying for some time that, you know, people are looking at the wrong things and they're not paying attention to some of these changes. Central banks are not, you know, uh, in control uh, and, it, and uh, Peter mentioned liquidity, which is something that I know you're laser focused on. Are we in some sort of new reality where old relationships between asset classes or the old rules of the highway are changing and the way we think about investing needs to be completely reimagined? I think that's certainly possible. And I would go a step further and say maybe some of the assumptions that underpin some of our investment thesis over the last you know decade or so they need to be reexamined as well. I mean, we, I, I talked about it before in Real Vision, uh, maybe diversifi diversification itself needs to be redone or rethought. Maybe we need to think about that a little more closely. And there's always this natural tension between passive investment and active investment. And over the last decade or so, ever since really the 2008 crisis, I mean, you could, as, as, as he said, you know, you could just buy an index fund and forget about it. And maybe that's not necessarily the case moving forward and that there, we are moving toward a more, a more much more required, as he, I think he said, homework. You know, people in the investment services industry are going to have to earn their paycheck rather than just buying a Vanguard index fund. And there's a variety of reasons for that, including, as you mentioned, Maggie, you know, geopolitics are certainly as the economy continues to falter, as we continue to uh, suffer under the uh, the uh, same constraints as the post-2008 environment, that's going to lead to more fragmentation, more deglobalization, more less cooperation, less freedom of movement, less freedom of movement of money, as well as finance, all these kinds of things that I think we need to re-examine for maybe the first time in what? A half century or so. It's been a very long time since we really had to put these things together. But that's certainly the direction that we've been moving toward, not just since 2020, really going back to 2008. And I think it's 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 important that people are beginning to notice the effects of these things because they are they have become and they are becoming that more serious, that much more serious. And they will be longer run challenges going forward. I mean, we're all used to globalization and global economic cooperation, but we're mm -hmm. We're at least a decade beyond that into a fragmentary era where we're going to have to look at things very differently. That's not just, you know, not just investing, but also geopolitics as well as real economy and marketplaces. 
Yeah, well said, Jeff. And I think this is so important. And again, these are the sort of themes that we're trying to mine and talk to folks like you about, because this is a really big change. And it doesn't matter if you're a trader yourself or you're just trying to you know, protect your portfolio and your wealth, and you need to talk to a financial advisor who's still operating on the old rules. You, you need to be really cognizant of this. Um, we've got some questions coming in. Great one from Achilles. It's the same one I wanted to ask you. Uh, and that is, Bonds are moving like an early stage biotech. Is it because the biggest buyer Jap Japanese traders are on vacation, if I'm right? Um, but in general, what does this tell you about liquidity in the market? This coming from the exchange. What are you seeing in terms of liquidity, Jeff? I know this is something you're always worried about. In the actual, in the treasury market, I think most of the liquidity actions at the front rather than the back, uh, ironically. And I think a lot of it has to do, what, why is the bond market selling off so hard? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Jay Powell and the FOMC are pushing short-term rates based on, as I said, non-economic reasons, political considerations. And the market has to adjust that. And that has ripple effects, not just throughout the U.S. yield curve, but also into foreign curves and foreign markets as well. And I think that also has a, a major impact and in under the, underneath the stock market as well, because it, it, the some of the major assumptions over the last couple of years that have been very good for owning U.S. equities, we have to reexamine them because one of them was the idea that the Federal Reserve was going to be your friend. Jay was going to be your pal. He was always going to be in your back pocket whenever you needed him. And now that he's ultra aggressive, hiking rates, taking away the punch bowl, whether that's true or not, people believe it. So that, that removes one of the major supports from the stock market, which has in this environment, I think, had an amplified effect because systemic liquidity, for lack of a better term, has been relatively poor for some time. So you put these things together, you've got aggressive Fed rate hikes that are inconsistent with the actual economy in global situation. At the same time, you have the Fed taking away the punch bowl. And now you have all these economic questions, massive economic uncertainty on top. You can understand why, you know, outside of the Treasury market in particular, that there's, you know, markets are having a lot of trouble navigating these, you know, the last couple of months because all these things are starting to come together. So I'm not really necessarily looking at the lack of liquidity in the Treasury market so much as where that's where the move in uh, interest rates is actually coming from. And I think it's coming from. Mr. Powell trying to be Bill Clinton. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. TC asking, what are Jeff's thoughts on Fords on treasuries on the RV side? The forward curve still looks complete, completely, I mean, that part hasn't changed. The uh, forward curve, the forward, uh, forward yield curve, the forward yield spreads, they all look still recessionary. So, as far as the market concerns, as far as the forward market is concerned, euro dollar futures, options on euro dollar futures, there's still a lot of options out there. Uh, Mike Green mentioned that a while ago on our podcast where he said, you know, there's options uh, that are gaining in value on bets on negative uh, Fed fund or negative, um, negative Federal Reserve rates in the future. So there's still a massive amount of financial uncertainty. There's still a lot of indications that the uh, the economy, the financial system is not in a very healthy situation. And none of that has changed, even as yields go higher, which, I mean, that's reflected in the fact that the curve hasn't been, hasn't steepened out all that much 
beyond the three-year treasury. So John on the RV site asking, what's your take on TLT and long-term bonds in general? I mean, do you do you think that we're going to, uh, you know, top out at a lower rate than people are expecting? I mean, how do you see this playing out? Because if there's a disconnect, you know, when, when does everything catch up? When do bonds start not looking at what the Fed's doing, but paying attention to what's happening in the economy? That's the, the multi-trillion dollar question, right? When does Jay Powell finally say enough is enough? We've we've gone too far, or we've we've gone too we've gone so far because we're not paying attention, or the political pressure has moved. That's really kind of what the market is is struggling to identify and figure out is when does the Fed stop? And I think the I think the consensus here is for, certainly among most of the major marketplaces, including stocks, is that you know the Fed is making a mistake here. But we don't know when the mistake becomes so obvious the Fed stops hiking and then starts to turn around. So to answer the question about TLT and bonds as an investment, at some point they're going to make a lot of sense because I would expect that rates are going to go back down again. Don't know how far. I have my own opinion. I think they're going to go down much farther than people expect over time. But we don't know when it'll change. And in that in that period in between, so long as the FOMC and Jay Powell is dead set intent upon raising rates for reasons that their own, there's that risk of rates continuing to go higher because the Fed is going to do what it's going to do until it's forced to stop. Yeah. If you've tried to time that so far, because people have had that view, you've got your head handed to you. I mean, we've seen some really, you know, and bonds moving more rapidly than they have in the past. So unless you're really careful to protect yourself, um, you had to bail out. It it didn't work. And people have been trying to do that. So Jojo on the RV site asking, um, what's your advice for capital allocation at this juncture? Keep cash? I mean, I think this is the problem. If you believe your, your framework is right, um, but the, but the timing is so uncertain. I mean, is cash is cash the only answer? I don't know if it's the only answer, but it's it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of prudent sense because during these times you start to sh- you start to shift your viewpoint from trying to make money to just trying to keep money. That's yeah. one of the one of the you know old rules of investing that maybe we don't need to reexamine. Is that you know during periods like facing a potential recession, facing a period when the, the Federal Reserve is making all sorts of mistakes and continuous mistakes, that maybe we need to be more careful about just preserving capital rather than making it. But there are still pockets of, of, of places where you can go. Again, I still think there are structural issues with certain commodities, not all of them. I mean, over the last couple of weeks, really going back to the middle of March, a lot of the, some of the high flyers and commodities have suffered too, even though they largely still have a beneficial supply-demand dynamic. So, that's another indication of uncertainty, uh, possibility of trouble in, in the real economy and real marketplace, too. But there, there are certain places where you can still look to make money. But, you know, as we were talking about before, it's not as easy as just buying an index fund or just buying yes. any stock you want. Now you have to be very careful, very choosy, very picky, uh, because uncertainty is the death knell for these types of market or these types of assumptions, too. That's right. And they can turn on you quickly. We're going to have a couple of uh, of uh, really experienced commodity folks join that series next week to try to help sort through it, because you're right. And I think that's why it's such an important point that Peter brought up. If we've got to look on it on an individual basis and all of us really need to get up to speed, it's not something we frankly have had to do. And commodities in particular can be very, very tricky, um, as, as um, you know, Tony and um, and Dave Floyd and Ms. Schneider, all, all the folks that have been in that for a long time, Peter Brandt, warn us all the time. You do have to be careful about that. Um, Paul from the RV site, uh, and this might have to be our last one. Why isn't gold moving up, Jeff? 
Well, gold, I think, is because there's some issues with collateral shortages and how gold is deployed. It's not as obvious as it had been at certain points in history, including last year. But I think gold is suffering under its, its collateral of last resort, as well as, you know, I think there was a there was sort of a sugar rush into gold, Russia, Ukraine, geopolitics, and everybody piled into gold. And sort of some of those, those, some of those uh, short-term factors have waned a little bit. But by and large, I think, as, as you see, and of course, we have to always have to keep in mind, real interest rates are rising in the U.S., which is always a, a negative factor in gold prices, too. So as we move forward, I think it becomes much more gold positive once these errors, once these uncertainty gets cleared up is sort of in a sad and unfortunate way if we do end up in a recession or even just a downturn where interest rates, or at least the interest rate profile over the longer run, starts to go back down again. I think you can see gold prices, intermediate and longer term, do much better than they are now. But there are a whole pile of idiosyncratic factors that are weighing on the gold price currently. And none of them are inflation, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's crazy. But it, it is the thing that's always complicated with gold um, is that there are so many cross currents that you you have to navigate. I mean, people have been looking for that breakout forever, and they just keep getting thwarted. Um, I'm going to sneak more, one more in. Um, Jeff, I know in the past we've talked about it, and you, and you have such a deep dive on these collateral issues. Um, and for people who want more information, I encourage you to go to the Alhambra uh, website. Jeff posts posts his research there um, along with amazing charts. We'll try to link some of them if we can. Um, I think that, you know, we hear people say, you know, if the Fed's going to do this until something breaks or, you know, we're in this kind of situation, is are you worried about some kind of illiquidity moment or something that starts to spiral into markets actually not properly functioning? Are we at risk of something like that happening? Yeah, I think we already saw that a couple of months ago in the middle of March. It wasn't a, it wasn't like a massive financial crisis, but it was more than a hiccup. You saw the middle of March, that's when the yield curve uh, uh, inverted for the, the broad twos and tens, as well as much of the curve in between the twos and tens was inverted. It was a very dicey situation. A lot of it had to do with collateral shortages, too. You could see that in the reflected in T-bill rates, uh, a number of other things, repo fails. The, the Really, the guts of the financial system during the middle of March, which is always a seasonal low point to begin with, that combined into what was really a dicey situation there for quite for, from quite some time, and with the dollar going higher since then, curves not really uh, uh, you know uh, they're not move, they haven't moved steeper they haven't really changed since then they're they're, they're not as bad as they were but they, they haven't really gotten better so it looks like we've survived that March period but it, it's not like uh, we we moved on back into a, a much better situation some of those things are still there I mean you look at Treasury bill yields as I mentioned before today. They are ridiculously low. The, the four-week Treasury bill rate is, I think, 48 basis points, the last I checked, which today the, the reverse repo rate is 80 and IOER is 90. So you have a four-week Treasury bill that's you know 40-some basis points below IOER and 30-some basis points below RRP, which is indicative of a huge collateral shortfall, which means the situation is entirely fragile, like it was in March. And it may not take much of a spark to start setting things off so that we go back into a similar kind of a situation, maybe even something worse if it, if it doesn't get checked or if it doesn't stop of its own accord this time versus last time. Even more reason to be cautious and make sure that you are properly sized for risk in this environment, it sounds like. Jeff, amazing as always. Thank you so much for being with us on this crazy week and payroll day to boot. Great to have all your insight. Thanks for having me, Maggie.
And I'll be back uh, same time on Monday with Jared Dillian. And we will, of course, have the second week of our special on global recession. Here's some more detail on when you can find out all about that. In the meantime, have a great weekend. It's a really complicated world out there. We've got massive inflation, recession fears, war in Europe, COVID, China issues. What the hell's happening? Everyone's got an opinion. But who's right? Who's wrong? As co-founder of Real Vision, I've got my own view. But maybe I'm wrong too. And I want to go and find out more from real experts, real in-depth analysis. And I've hand-chosen my experts for this two-week journey of discovery in global recession is everyone wrong? I've chosen people like Peter Zihan to talk to him about geopolitics, David Rosenberg about the economy, and Pierre Andran, the world's most famous energy trader, about how to navigate the oil markets and where it's all going. This starts on May 2nd, and I'm going to learn so much about what really is going on and how to best navigate it. Yes, not everybody's going to be saying the same thing, but it's going to allow me to piece together an investment framework to navigate these complicated times. Now, normally we'd give you seven day trial for one dollar, but because this is so important for all of you, and I think it's one of the most important pieces of content we've ever done, we're extending that free trial for two weeks for one dollar. So you get the entire campaign of all of these great minds. And it's only one dollar for all of this. So just go to realvision.com forward slash global recession to find out more and join me as I try and figure out what the hell's going on. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.